When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories from Roy's Diner. This is your host, John Hagedorn. Two great stories for you today from Escape, and many more favorites from Escape coming in the month of September. I hope you enjoy them, and if you do, and if you're Apple listeners, please do take a moment and send us a review for 1001 Stories from Roy's Diner if you're enjoying our show. Thank you. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. high on the frozen slopes of a great mountain, terrified and caught in a blizzard, while the thing for which you've been hunting has suddenly become the hunter. And if it finds you, then for you and your companions, there can be no escape. So listen now as Escape brings you Anthony Ellis' exciting story, The Abominable Snowman. first bit of luck was when we hired our Sherpa guide, Nasang. That was in Darjeeling. When I told Nasang what we were after, he hesitated for a moment. And then he said, The Saibs have not come to climb Shomolongma? Oh, no. We're a little late for that. It's already been done. The other two Saibs and myself are here for the reason I told you. Metokangmi? That's right. The Saibs always hire me to climb the mountain with them. But never this. Are you afraid of them? I have seen one. You've seen one? Yes, many of us have seen them. Uh, uh, wait a minute. Alan. Yeah? What's that? I'm interviewing a Sherpa in here. He says he's seen one of the things. Hey. Where's Frank? Uh, went out to get some tobacco. Yeah. All right, come on in. I think this is our man. All right. Nasang? This is Mr. Ferris. Sir? Hello, Nassang. Nassang was telling me about what he'd seen. 
Go ahead, Nasan. It has a face that is evil. And when it saw me, it uttered a strange cry and bounded away. Sometimes leaping, sometimes running with great strides. It was dusk, and after a moment I lost sight of it in the snow. Where were you? With the French expedition. It was at 19,000 feet on Shomolungma. How far were you from it? 30 feet, uh, perhaps 35. You're sure it wasn't an ape? I am sure. There is no ape in the Himalaya to make such a track. What about bears? This too I have been asked. But does a bear walk always upon its hind legs? Well, that's enough for me. Alan? Yeah, he'll do. Yeah. But if you want the job, Nassang, you're hired. You are going to try to capture a yeti? Yes. It will be a difficult thing. But I will serve with you. Yeti, wild man, Netokangmi, abominable snowman. That's the name the natives had for the things, and Alan Ferris, Frank Davis, and I were going to try to get one. We'd all done some climbing, but climbing was secondary here. Expeditions since the beginning of the 20th century had heard of the abominable snowman, observed their tracks, and one or two white men claimed to have seen them. Great ape, bear, monkey, wild men... We didn't know, but we were going to find out. Four weeks later, we were in the Rongbuk Valley for our interview at the monastery with the Lama. The journey from our base had been uneventful. The weather was good and our spirits were high. From the Lama's window, we could see the great peak of Everest in the distance. Why, gentlemen, do you desire to capture Metokangmi? Because, sir, we believe it will be an invaluable aid in our prehistoric research, that is, if these things are in any way human. And for this reason, then, you have formed the expedition? Yes. You are all familiar with climbing? Yes, we are. You would need to be. The Yeti move at high places, dangerous places, so my people tell me. Also, the monsoons are arriving in a short time. I understand that. Then do we have your permission to investigate in the valley and beyond? You have my permission. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. There is one point, however. I must request that no wild animal or being in this valley be shot. Our religion does not allow it. We'll respect your wishes, sir. Now, may I ask you one more thing? Of course, my son. Do you believe in the existence of Metokangmi? I myself have never seen them, but I know that they live here, above the valley, on the goddess mother of the world. It is also true that at least five, and possibly more, inhabit the upper Rongbuk and its glaciers. Thank you. Do you have porters? Our guide, Nasang, is hiring them now. Yeah. I trust that he meets with good fortune. The old man with great dignity bowed slightly to us and we were dismissed. But I thought I saw the shadow of a smile on his lips as he turned away. 
and it wasn't long before I found out why. Nasang returned to us in our quarters and his face warned of bad news. Sir, I am unable to hire any porters. Why not? They know the purpose of the expedition. They will not go. Why? They are afraid. Of the snowmen? Yes. They live in peace with them. They wish no trouble. They are afraid. Well, all right. It'll be rough, but we can't waste time talking them into it. The monsoons will be coming in a couple of weeks. It's not the same as climbing, Everest. We'll travel light, just the four of us. Set up a base and start hunting. All right with you, fellows? Yeah, yeah sure. Nasang? I will go with you. I am not afraid. Good. Well, let's take a look at the map. Now, we'll each carry a capacity load. We should be able to make this point below the glacier in two days. That's 16,000 feet. Mm. And if our abominable snowmen are in the vicinity, we've got two weeks to find them. When do we start? Tomorrow. Good. Well, that's it. Um, Paul? Yes, Frank? Uh, one thing. What do the natives mean when they say they don't want any trouble with the things? Uh, superstition, probably. Oh, no, sir. It is not superstition. It is because the Yeti are cannibals. That is why the porters are afraid. weather turned ugly the day we left the village. A cold Tibetan wind blew down from the west, and with our heavy packs it took us much longer than we'd thought to arrive at the point just below the Rangbuk Glacier. We set up our camp and made ourselves as comfortable as we could. The next morning wasn't so bad. There was a heavy overcast, a promise of snow, and the peak of Everest looming over us was shrouded in clouds. The four of us sat in the tent looking at our charts and drinking hot tea. Uh, I figured it'd be easiest if we started at the East Glacier. It's only about three miles from here, and with the weather as stinking as it is, we won't run too much of a risk. What do you think, Paul? Well, that sounds all right. What do you say we split up? Uh, you and Nasung, Alan and me. We'll work up on either side of the ridge, here. And if we spot any tracks, fire two shots. Hmm? Yeah, good enough. Now, the big thing, though, no matter what... Don't shoot at the thing if you do see it. Okay? Okay. All right. If we lose touch with each other, we'll meet back here at five. All right, let's get going. We'd left the base at six that morning, and the going was rough. Alan was pretty well shot by the time we got to the 17,000-foot mark. He was having a tough time breathing, and the wind had come up again. And with it, a fine, powdery snow that blinded and choked us. Hey, I, I, I gotta take five. All right. Here, move over here. Might cut some of the wind. Oh... Oh. oh, that's better. Well, we might as well start back for the base. We couldn't see anything in this anyhow. You know, right now, I don't care whether we do or not. Uh, this is good weather. Wait until the monsoons start. No, no, not me. Oh, I'm cold. I've never been so cold in all my life. 
stayed in the half-shelter of an overhang for ten minutes, and the wind was quieter and the snow had let up. I noticed that the tracks we'd made coming into the shelter were gone now, but we didn't have any worry finding our way back. I figured that Frank and Nasang had met pretty much the same thing on their side of the ridge, and we'd meet them at the base. So Alan and I picked ourselves up and started off. Boy, I, I thought I was in pretty good shape, but up here... Boy, I'm nothing. Oh, Paul, I'm tired again. We'll just take it easy going down. You haven't got frostbite, have you? No. No, not yet, but... What? The left there. Yeah. They're not our tracks, are they? Not unless you took your boots off on the way up. Must have just passed by. It must have seen us. Yeah. Come on. We were looking at a set of tracks newly made in the fresh snow. And they'd passed so close to our shelter that the thing must have known we were there. They weren't the tracks of a bear or an ape, but more like a splay-footed naked foot. The tracks of the abominable snowman. We will return to escape in just a moment, but first, 30 million school children make their way back to class this year. There are just 10 million too many for existing school facilities. Contact Better Schools to West 45th Street, New York 19, for information on ending this menace to America's educational standards. And now, back to Escape. began to follow the tracks, and for a while, perhaps 150 yards, it was easy. And then the thing made a leftward traverse down a deep slope. We could see the prince clearly, angling with a sidestep, as sure-footed as a mountain goat, except that it was walking on two legs. This way, Paul. Take it easy, Al. It's get, getting steeper. Boy, that thing sure can climb. Hold up. Allah. I think they Hold it. And he dropped out of sight over the lip of the crevasse. We weren't roped together. I got as close as I dared to the edge. The loose snow crumbled away from my outstretched body. And I looked down into the blue-black darkness below, falling away into nothingness. He was gone. Finished. All I could think of was the noise he'd made when he went over. Surprised, angry, then silence. The crevasse might have been 500 feet or 5,000. Snow started to fall again. Big flakes this time and wet. I stood up and across the gap 20 feet away I saw the tracks of the thing continuing on and away until they became lost in the blank whiteness of the glacier. It had jumped and landed still upright on the opposite side. I went back to the base. And an hour later, Frank and Nassang returned. I told them. And we were quiet for a long time. Then, 
Are we going out again tomorrow? Why not? I just wanted to. We should go back. It is an omen. I tell you, he was going too fast. He didn't have a chance to see the crevasse. That's not an omen. It's bad sense. Meto Kangmi cannot be caught. We'll catch him. Uh, but there are only three of us. If we had a few more men... I tell you, the thing was so close that we'd, if we'd looked up at the right time, we'd have seen it. You think I'm going to give up now? Next time we'll get it. There was no chance to get Alan out. Huh? No. You think if we went back... We'd... Listen, you think I don't want to? He's gone. I tried, but he's gone. Okay. Oh, okay. Wish that wind had let up. Maybe by morning. We'll try again tomorrow. It was cold that night, and somehow colder because Alan was gone. I heard Frank tossing around, and I knew he was thinking about... A body, broken and lonely, lost somewhere in a deep and dark place. In the morning, the three of us packed our gear, camera, food. It was a light pack. And we started up again. This time to a crest above the ridge. It was tougher than it looked, and we weren't even halfway up before we had to rest. And as I looked to the west, I saw clouds boiling up. Not white, but somber, threatening. And below... The valley looked grim, ugly gray. And then the sun was gone. And we kept on going up. And then I had a strange feeling. It was nothing I could see, nothing I could hear, only a sensation of being watched, followed. Wait a minute. See something? No. I, I have felt it too, Saib. Something following us? Yes, it is Metukangmi. How do you know? It can be nothing else. At this site, there is nothing else that lives. Maybe it's curious. No, don't turn around, Frank. Listen. When we get up to the crest, you two flop down. Stay in sight of the slope here. What are you going to do? Move around the hump and watch. If it thinks we're all together, it may come close enough to give us a chance to get it. You better watch your step. It looks nasty. I will. Now, come on. It took us another 15 minutes to get up to the crest, and then Frank and Nassang hunched down to rest. They were in clear view of the slope we just descended. I moved back out of sight and made my way toward the hump, which backed a long shelf on the north side of the crest. In a couple of minutes, I lost sight of them and of the slope. The wind had increased and the clouds had spread now to become an iron-gray canopy over the mountain. It was getting colder again. I don't think it took over five minutes to reach my lookout point. And when I did, I had a perfect view of the ground we'd covered. There was nothing there. The men were out of sight. And I waited. A minute. Two. There was nothing. Until... It came, carried on the wind, a cry and then shots. I scrambled back to where I'd left them. And when I got there, when I got there, Frank was lying on his back. And I couldn't look at what was left of his face. There were terrible deep rents in his clothing and he was dead. The song lay huddled a few feet beyond, 
a gun in his hand. Sir. Yeah. What is it? What? Metok hung me. Came from behind us. Before I could draw the gun, it has killed. Then it sprang at me. It is strong, Saib, with the strength of ten men. All right. All right, can you sit up? My leg, it struck at me, my leg. Broken. I shot at it, but I missed. It jumped away and was gone. Okay. We'll have to figure out a way to get you down. We were four hours from camp, and with Nassang practically helpless, it could well be four days or never. I buried Frank where he was lying, then began to work down the slope. Nassang was in great pain. He half slid and crawled as best he could. That part of it wasn't too bad. Then we were at the bottom, and there was a ledge to climb. It took well over two hours to do that, and we still had three miles of difficult terrain to cover. The stops became more frequent. Sir, leave me here. Go back. No. My leg is frozen. There is no feeling anymore. I shall not live much longer, sir. Don't be a fool. After a rest, you'll be able to go on. Soon the night comes. If we are both caught here, we both die. There will be snow, much snow. Leave me, sir. No, we're going back together. Please, let me sleep. Let me sleep here. I cannot go on. You've got to, Nassan. No. No more. The ridge is only about a half mile. From there, it won't be too bad. No. No, let me stay. Nassan. Let me sleep. No. No, come on, Nassan. Come on, you're not going to sleep. Nassan. You'll be all right. Behind you, Sam. I turned, and for an instant, I saw it outlined against the snow, crouching of medium height. It was covered with thick hair. The face was reddish and bare. A semi-human face. And it was not an ape. The thing made a tremendous leap and was gone, but I'd hit it. I knew I hit it. It took me. That was he. Did you kill it? No, I don't think so. Then it will be back. It has tasted blood. You must leave me. No, get up. Get up. Come on. Let's go. Nassan! I am very sorry, sir. Will you ask the Lama to make a prayer for me? Sure. Sure I will, Nassan, but... Give my pay to my wife in their healing. I'm sorry, sir. I die. Nassan! Nassan! darkness came, and with its shadows in the snow, every hillock mound became the thing, motionless, waiting. In my mind, I kept seeing it, its long arms, powerful, and the dreadful claws it must have possessed. 
I carried my gun in my gloved hand, but I knew that I couldn't fire it unless I was barehanded. And that meant my hand would freeze to the gun. And then suddenly I felt myself slipping. It was a short incline, but when I reached the bottom, the gun was gone. I'd lost it. I've got to find it. I've got to find it. And I saw a glint of metal in the snow ten feet away. And at the same time, above me at the top of the bank, the thing... It stood swaying a little, looking down at me. I moved slowly, slowly, inched my way toward the gun. And as I drew closer, I kept my eyes looking up. But it didn't move, only stared down at me. And I thought I saw its little eyes glittering. And I thought, if the gun's frozen now, if it's frozen, it doesn't fire. And I was nearer to it, near enough to take off my glove. But that moment in which I'd have to bend to pick it up, that's when it would leap down at me, tear my throat out, tear and... I had the gun and I pulled the trigger. And it lay there, strange and terrifying, its blood staining the snow. Looked at me. Looked at me. Until the sound died away. It was dead. But the eyes kept on staring. It must have been the shots that loosened the snow and ice on the ridge above. I heard the sound and I ran. It passed me and swept on down toward the valley, the thunder of it dying in the distance. And when I went back, there was nothing there. It was buried somewhere under tons of snow. I made my way back to the Rongbuk village. I don't remember how. I didn't remember anything for two weeks after. But I'm alive. And I'm not going back there again. That's all I know. Or want to know about the abominable snowmen. Escape has brought you The Abominable Snowman, written and directed by Anthony Ellis, starring William Conrad as Lane. Featured in the cast were Anthony Barrett, High Everback, Jack Crucian, and Edgar Barrier. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Next week... You are 
a passenger aboard a submarine making its last peaceful voyage across the sea. While unknown to you, the captain has a plan, which, if it succeeds, will mean for you and the entire crew a fate from which there can be no escape. So listen next week when Escape will bring you Marion Mosner and Francis Rosenwald's exciting story, The Log. You're headed in the right direction. The station is right. The network is right, too. Check all timepieces and then check your local radio schedule. Let's have no slip-ups. Everybody wants to hear the Jack Benny Show right from the beginning when it returns to CBS Radio tonight. This is Roy Rowan speaking. This is the CBS Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Tired of the everyday grind? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? 
Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape. Escape, designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. You are a passenger aboard a submarine, making its last peaceful voyage across the sea. While unknown to you, the captain has a plan, which, if it succeeds, will mean for you and the entire crew a fate from which there can be no escape. So listen now as Escape brings you Marianne Mosner and Francis Rosenwald's exciting story, The Log. When I was a cub reporter, my boss told me, be there. Don't let your own emotions color your story. Stick to the facts. So these are the facts. This is the way it happened. I met Captain Jan Zabados in a Scandinavian port. During the last war, he'd been in command of a submarine, the only sub of a nation that fought the dictators side by side with the Allies. When he was finally forced into this neutral port, the captain preferred internment to surrender. After that, his nation went out of the business of being a nation. He was left behind with his ship, unwanted by the Allies, and a burden to the government that had become his permanent host. To pay for the vessel's berth and maintenance, the authorities turned her into a tourist's exhibit, permitting her skipper to stay aboard as caretaker and tourist guide. We met during one of those guided tours. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this concludes the tour of the SS Seagull, a great ship with a peerless war record. It was my honor and privilege to guide her across hostile waters as master of this man of war that gave battle to the last torpedo. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. You are very welcome all, and this way, if you please. You got a few minutes, Captain? I'm Bill Rawlins, New York Globe. I enjoyed your tour a lot. Uh, thank you, Mr. Rawlins. Always glad to talk to gentlemen of the press. I presume you would like to write a story on the seagull. Well, to be honest about it, sir, I'd rather write about her skipper. <laughs> I am honored, but without the seagull, you won't have much of a story. She and I are comrades in arms. The war has been over a long time, Captain. Yes, yes, of course. Haven't you ever thought of going home? Mr. Rollins, this is my home and always will be. As we walked across the deck... The seagull came to life the way her skipper talked about her exploits at sea. And I saw 1,500 tons of steel that had never faltered, never failed. I was busy taking notes when the man came up the gangplank, stocky, brisk, dressed in a natty gray suit, a briefcase under his arm. How do, gentlemen? Uh, where, uh, where do I find the man in charge? I'm in command of the Seagull, Captain Jan Shabados. What can I do for you? The name's Andrews, here's Picard. I represent the Liverpool office of the Marine Salvage and Surplus Corporation. Do you mind if I look around? The next 
tour of the seagull commences at 16 o'clock. That's fine. You go right ahead. I know my way around ships. Bought and sold them all my life. This is my first sight. I'm afraid you must be mistaken, sir. The seagull is not for sale. Uh, not anymore. My company just bought her. I closed the deal yesterday. Look, this can't be. Nobody has authority to sell my ship. The government has, according to international law. This, this isn't your ship anymore, Captain. Do you realize what it costs this country to keep her docked here? I suppose I, I knew that this was going to happen. Excuse me, sir, what does your company plan to do with the seagull? Scrapper. What else is she good for? <laughs> yes, of course, what else is she? You plan to break her up here? No, no, we'll have to tow her across to Liverpool. Mr. Andrews, the seagull is perfectly capable to sail under her own power. All the way across the North Sea? No, no. It must be pretty rusty by now. My ship is in as good condition as she was ten years ago when we put in this port. I know how you feel, Skipper, but if you don't mind, I'd rather play it safe. No, I don't think I made myself clear. Sir, this ship has had the finest maintenance that you find aboard any vessel. I have seen to that myself. Would you care to go below and look about, sir? Sure, why not? Then if you will follow me. Rust and corrosion, I understand. She was a beauty, all right. Her diesels reposing in gleaming silence. Her eye, a Zeiss periscope, set to scan the horizon. Her tubes ready for torpedoes. I felt a strange affinity toward this ship that to Andrews meant just so many tons of metal to be turned into X amount of dollars... While to her captain, she was a whole world of tradition. A world now coming to an end. And still, I suppose you think that the seagull should be dismantled and scrapped? Well, I'm afraid that's what we bought her for. Then may I respectfully make a last request on her behalf? I'll be happy to oblige if it's anything reasonable. Don't, don't tow her away like a crippled ship. Let me guide her on this last journey. All we need is one week, a, a skeleton crew. My services are free. I don't know. All right. I'll tell you what, Skipper. I'll check with my company and get in touch with you. Ah. Well, that sounds like a good idea to me, Andrews. You'd be saving your company quite a bit of money. My firm's allergic to taking chances. You don't take chances with the seagull. The cold logic of the dollar in the bank, not the captain's last request, persuaded the scrap metal man to take a well-calculated risk on the seagull and her master. Mr. Andrews was to accompany the ship on her final journey. I requested and was granted permission to go along and cover the voyage for my paper. It was a gray, overcast morning when we boarded the seagull. She was straining gently at her anchors with the last of the ebb tide. Help Skipper hired a decent cook. Nothing like sea air to give a man an appetite. I'm not looking forward to a picnic, Mr. Andrews. All I want is a story. You won't find it in this barge, Rawlins. But I can give you plenty of stories. My uh, company isn't averse to publicity. When we reached the bridge, we found a changed man. Captain Jan Zabados. Commander of the submarine Seagull, wearing a freshly creased uniform, windbreaker, and his well-worn battle cap. Anchor secure, sir. All engines back up. All engines back up, sir. 
Course. Zero, zero, five. Zero, zero, five, sir. Port engine, back two-thirds. Starboard engine, ahead, standard. Port engine, back two-thirds. Starboard engine, ahead, standard, sir. Stand by, all hands. Standing by, sir. Now, well, gentlemen, we are off. A little chilly this morning, Skipper. Perfect weather. Makes you hungry anyway. What time do we Breakfast eat? will be served in my quarters in ten minutes, Mr. Andrews. Come on down, Rollins. Let's get some chow. We had breakfast. It was better than Andrews had expected. And he was in an expansive mood when we returned to the bridge... He'd fortified himself with a thick cigar which stuck out of his mouth like a stubby finger pointed at the captain. Well, how's it going, Skipper? Passing the three-mile zone, sir. Weather seems to be clearing up. Maybe we can do a little deep-sea fishing, huh, Rollins? I've never fished from a submarine, Mr. Andrews. Sorry, gentlemen. No fishing. This is not a pleasure cruise. <laughs> That's a step, Skipper. Business before pleasure. And I agree, sir. You will leave the bridge now. Why? What's wrong? Nothing, sir. We are getting ready to submerge. Sir, what are you talking about? Submerge? On whose orders? My orders, Mr. Andrews. Nothing doing. That's against regulations, and you know it. This trip is to be made on the surface unless there's an emergency. Clear diving rudders. Diving rudders clear, sir. Did you hear what I said? Ready the tanks. Hank, standing by, sir. That's enough, Sabatos. You know what the orders are. I'm not going to allow I you... I must to... inform you, sir, that I am in sole command of the Seagull. I shall surrender her to no one but her rightful owner, my country. Your country? You've got no country. It's a satellite... Then of... I shall sail the seas until I have one again. You know what you're saying? That's piracy. Then, Mr. Andrews, I shall be a pirate, shan't I? Clear the deck. Diving stations. Diving stations. You're out of your mind. <laughs> Passengers below, please. Now, that's an order, Mr. Andrews. Standing by, sir. Well, I'd found my story. When we slipped beneath the surface of the North Sea, the captain let the men have rum and brandy to celebrate the seagull's return to what he called active duty. crazy. He's gone stark raving crazy. The crew that madman picked himself. Well, we'll see about this. Hey, bosun. Bosun, come over here. Know how to handle this ship? I know my job, sir. How would you like a bonus, say $1,000? I'd like it fine, sir. All right. Take over. Never mind the captain. I'll back you up. I'm sorry, sir. He's my captain. I'm in charge of this ship. He's under my orders. Yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. I'm under his orders. That's how it went with the rest of the crew. They were all men without a country, handpicked by the captain, fanatically devoted to their master and the ship that was their world. In the meantime, I noticed some activity on the part of the captain and his radio operator, a constant flow of communications between the ship's wireless and her master's tiny cabin. Andrews and I went there. Come in. 
The captain was sitting on the bunk, poring over a chart-filled table. Mind if you and I have a little talk? I'm quite busy. Five minutes, Mr. Andrews. Thank you. Don't you think this farce has gone far enough? You'll be running out of supplies, you know, and then what? The sea is abundant with stores of all kinds, Mr. Andrews. How do you mean? I shall requisition what I need. You can't be serious. Can't I? I have guns, fore and aft, shells to go with them. Give me time, I shall obtain torpedoes as well. You'll never get away with this. That remains to be seen. My wireless has picked up the Blenheim Castle, an English freighter. We will sight her by nightfall. You're going to stop her? Exactly, Mr. Andrews. There are a few supplies that we need. I am sure her captain will oblige before continuing on his way. We will return to escape in just a moment. But first, maybe it rained where you are today. The United States is pretty big, and it's hard for somebody on a coast-to-coast network to keep track of the weather everywhere. But even if they did, remember, it's been a very dry summer. The danger of forest fires is on every hand. Please be careful with those campfires, those cigarettes, those lighted matches. And now, back to Escape. Approximately eight hours later, the bosun's pipe shrilled as the seagull rose stealthily to the ocean's surface. Dead ahead in a choppy sea loomed the massive hull of the freighter Blenheim Castle, her foaming nose eerily phosphorescent, the position lights glimmering across the sea. Our searchlight reached up to her bridge with a long white finger. clearly made out the tanker's captain standing on his bridge in a splotch of white glare, bellowing through a megaphone. and Captain Zabatos had started his own private war. He had the guns and the tanker's captain had only his ship. Before the seagull's gun crew could get a bearing, the tanker lurched forward, picking up speed. Wheel hard over, bent on ramming us. Our guns started to fire, blasting away at the tanker. But it kept coming on. Closer, closer. The sharp bow cutting through the choppy sea. Dive, dive, dive! Dive, dive! 
weren't fast enough. There was a grinding lurch, and we knew the seagull had been damaged in the collision with the freighter, but we couldn't tell how badly. The first realization of disaster came when we saw the captain, his hair damp with perspiration, eyes gleaming feverishly, and a face turned ashen gray. Nobody leaves his station without my orders. You gentlemen stay out of the way. I'm not going to take orders from you or anybody else. I represent the owners of this ship. You do? You heard me, Zapatos. Then tell your owner she has been rammed. I'll hold you responsible. As her commander, I accept sole responsibility for ship and crew, including you and Mr. Rawls. That's very noble, mister, but I'm a businessman. What's the extent of the damage? Conning tower smashed and the scope tube cracked. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, surface, send an SOS. I never have sent an SOS, and I never will. That's your business. I'm an American citizen, and so is Mr. Rollins. You can't hold us against our... You will be put ashore when conditions are favorable. Let me set you straight, Sabatis. If you want to go down in misery, I'm not stopping you. But you can't force me to stick around until this tin can's full of holes. I want to get out of here. Now, I order you for the last time, surface, and signal for help. Andrews, if you wish to leave now, you may take a escape hat. You're crazy. Not at all. The damage is trifling. But since you feel so frightened of your life, I suggest that you leave. So help me. When we get out of this, I'm going to have you busted. Jailed. Hung if I can. Get out of my way, if you please. I have no time to discuss the matter with you. Come on, Andrews. Whose side are you on, anyway, Rollins? Nobody's. I just want to live. The hours pass slowly at the ocean bottom. The stillness echoing the attempts of the men working to repair the damage. The air was getting foul. Breathing becoming more difficult. Storage battery's going, sir. Ah. Then dim the lights, bosun. Oxygen's running low. Ration it. I've got two men in sick bay already. Sir. All right. All right. Carry on. Sir. What? What? What is it, Bolson? The men need air. It's very bad aft. All right. Very well, Bolson. We go up. All engines. Ready. All engines ready, sir. Clear pressure tanks. Clearing tank, sir. Diving rudder. Standard. Vessels approaching overhead, sir. Ease rudder, hold tanks. Subchaser closing in, sir. Request ship to ship communication. All right. I talk to them. Stand by. SS Seagull coming in. Go ahead, NS-127. Are you in trouble, Seagull? No trouble, sir. Surface at once. State... Your conditions? No. Then I regretfully refuse her. 
Following orders, Seagull. Come up, or we drop depth charges. Do so, then. You can't get away. We've got a sonar fix on you. No surrender. We are ready with depth charges, Seagull. Wait! Get back! Americans down here! We need hot communications! The first depth charge was a warning. Followed by another coming closer. And another still closer. The pressure was enormous. The ship rocked from bow to stern and started to take water. Full engines! Ahead, full! All engines ahead, full, sir. Course, zero, two, standard. Course, zero, two, standard, sir. Don't try it, Captain. This is wrong. It can't help now. Stand out of my way, Mr. Rawlins. You're a naval officer, not a murderer. Your ship is finished. You have no right to kill your crew. And that's what it's going to mean if you don't stop. This, this is my ship. My life. No, you don't understand. It's still murder. Standing by for your order, sir. Well, what are you going to do? Oh. Surface. Surface! Surface! Stand by, surface! No response, sir. Tanks won't operate. All engines stop! All engines stop! Now what? I seem to have no choice, do I? Stand by to abandon ship. Abandon ship! That was almost the end of it. The sub couldn't get up to the surface. She could only go down. And the way she was taking water, it wasn't going to be long. The men lined up outside the escape chamber. And one by one, they shook hands with the captain as they moved by. You could see in his eyes what they meant to him. And in their low voices, their feelings for him. Goodbye, Captain. Goodbye, sir. Goodbye, Captain. Goodbye, Captain. Goodbye, Goodbye, sir. Then it was Andrew's turn to go. The bosun is in the lock. He will give you your instructions as to how to get to the surface. I lived through this, Zapatos. I'm going to see I know, the... I know. I am sorry for the, the discomfort you have been caused. Goodbye, Mr. Andrews. Coming? Coming, Rollins? Sure. You go ahead. Uh, one at a time, you know. Well, good luck. And to you.
Now, Mr. Rawlings, huh? I imagine you would have quite the story to write for your newspaper. Well, let's forget that. It's not important. What about you? Andrews isn't kidding, you know. Once you get up there... I wonder if... Would you do me one last service? Of course. He got his log out and started to write. I looked over his shoulder as he made his last entry. All men off ship. Strong list to port. Storage batteries, zero. Oxygen, 20. Ship secure. Signed, Captain Jan Zabados. Commander, S.S. Seagull. You oblige me by taking this log up with you. It can be fastened to your belt. Well, why don't... Why don't you carry it? There are one or two other things I must take with me. Now, look, if... if... No, Mr. Rollins, go on. I will follow you. Yes, but... Please go on. Okay. Hurry up, though, will you? She won't last long. I got up to the surface. A boat from the sub-chaser picked me up five minutes later. Every man of the crew and Andrews was safe. After that, we cruised about for hours, waiting, hoping that Sabatos would appear. But he didn't. I should have known he'd stay with the seagull. The skipper of the chaser understood what had happened a lot better after he'd read the log. I guess seamen have a feeling about such things. Well, that's the story. That's all there is to it. Under the direction of Anthony Ellis, Escape has brought you The Log, a story by Marianne Mosner and Francis Rosenwald, starring Lawrence Dobkin and Byron Kane. Featured in the cast were Alan Reed, Kurt Martell, Frank Gerstel, Eric Snowden, Richard Peel, and Jim Nusser. The special music for Escape was composed and conducted by Leith Stevens. Next week... You are walking the streets of an Indian city. Terrifying, sweltering streets. While the man you fear has already made his mark on you. A mark from which there can be no escape. So listen next week when Escape will bring you James Henderson's frightening story, The Untouchable. (laughs) 